should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, November 17th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. And because it's Tuesday, our favorite day of the week, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Hello, Hi. John. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Well, you know what? No, I lie. I'm not so great. Why not? Um, well, obviously, it's been an, uh, an incredibly sad um few days for us, you sure. know, since Friday. And so I w- wasn't able to say it publicly, but of course our thoughts and prayers um, extend out to all of those impacted by such violent acts. And so not just, you know, Paris, but everywhere else. Uh, and now it's becoming a worldwide attention. And I hate to say that, you know, Par- Paris, what happened in Paris last Friday, uh, has has gotten the attention of more people. Um, you know, this discussion should have should have transpired long ago, in my opinion. What discussion in particular? Because the discussion there's nothing of new about terrorist right attacks there, there's nothing. That's exactly my point. There's nothing new about terrorist attacks, but uh, you know, you can't get away from what happened. Um, in Paris since Friday uh, in the media, on social media, it, your friends are talking about it now, your family's talking about it now. Uh, and unfortunately, it took, you know, a city like Paris to to um, to be impacted so that, you know, it feels like people are now really, really, really talking about what to do. I will say that the, the, the discussions have been good and bad, in my opinion. Everything that I'm reading, I'm listening to. Um, the worst is on social media. Because you got a bunch of people now who seem to think that they have foreign uh, affairs experience or military advisement experience weighing in on the matter. And I think it's so incredibly dangerous because that is probably what some of these uh, terrorist groups want. It's It's been, in my opinion, strategic in how they have carried out their plan because then uh, on a social media level, you got all these people who are now talking and saying the most ignorant, racist, uh, horrible things, especially directed to, you know, Muslims. And that's how they get the vulnerable, you know, the, the people who believe Westerners are arrogant in this matter or who are anti-Muslim to recruit. True. Um, there's all I mean, it, it's on. Two levels, really, or even more levels. I don't know, but there's the the social media populist level, and then there's the you know lawmakers and the and the politicians level. And a lot of what we're hearing from that group, that level, isn't much better. I mean, no, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you saw the news. Chris Christie was asked by a conservative radio host, you know, so you want to you know stop any Syrian uh, refugees from coming into the country, and he's like, yes, and you know, would you you know would you let in a five year old Syrian refugee? And he's like, no. Right. 
It's like, well, that's Christian. Right. So, yes, uh, you know, and that, again, like I can't wrap up my whole thoughts on a matter in a matter of uh, two minutes because we have a show. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm very proud that the show that we put on together today will touch a little bit on immigration, but it will give us uh, a chance to reflect on the history of this country and uh, migrants. It will be a different discussion than the very negative um, anti-immigration racist conversation that's taken place even on NPR this morning. And my stomach was like sick, you know, some of Krasny's callers are asking for Governor Brown to, uh, you know, stand in solidarity with Texas in not allowing for Syrian refugees to to come into this country or the state, actually, California. Um, so we'll talk more about that. And I'm sure you'll cover some of that in your your show, which happens on Fridays here on the Michelle Miao show at four o'clock Pacific Standard Time uh, in, in John Zipper's week to week political roundtable talk. Uh, one last note on this. I mean, I just have to ask you, did you change your Facebook profile page to show support for France? I did not. Not because I don't support France. Just I'm not owned by Facebook. How about you? Same here. And I'm not (laughs) criticizing for those who did. You can do whatever you want. It is your profile page. But the most disturbing thing for me is that, you know, you change your profile page with like a selfie and you're smiling and and while the rest of everyone else who has been directly impacted by the Terrorist Act are still in mourning, whose lives have been uprooted. There's just something kind of effed up about it. Anyway, let's get the program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This week is the uh, the kickoff, the start of the Southeast Asian Film Festival right here in San Francisco. And I'm very excited. Um, I don't think in the, uh, you know, 10, 15 years that I've been out in the 33 years I've been living as a Southeast Asian person myself here in America that I've experienced, um, you know, a Southeast Asian film festival that is actually inclusive of LGBTQI stories and, and stories of, of women's issues and and, uh, and and that kind of, you know, more progressive view uh, as as far as like filmmaking goes. And some of these films are coming from countries such as Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Our next guest is a filmmaker who has a short film in this year's festival called A Daughter's Debt, a film touching on three generations of Hmong women dealing with issues such as bridal purchases, polygamy, and commodification. Let's welcome Chow Tao to the program. Chow, welcome. Chow. Hey, I'm here. Thanks for having me. Yay, you're you're on. Yes, I was I was my heart dropped and I was like I was so excited and looking forward to this conversation. Um, so thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, you know, it's a, it's fact. Little or or you know, little is known about Hmong culture or actually covered, of course, in mainstream media. So, like I said, I'm very proud to have you on as a guest. But uh, let's talk about your film, A Daughter's Debt. I mean, the film explores your own personal experiences, and I think that it's appropriate to even go as far uh, as far. Back or basic as telling people, you know, about Hmong people and and where they originally came from and their migration to this country and the history. Absolutely, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I think, you know, because it's a short film, you do want to tell, you want to give the audience a little bit of the background of what who Hmong people are and where we're from, and you know, our involvement with the war in Southeast Asia, and then why we're here in the U.S. and some of the the cultures, some of the customs that we have in the Hmong culture and how it's translating as we're trying to live in America. And so that the film touches a little bit on that. 
your, your, the film actually kind of starts with telling a bit of your mother's story and how, frankly, she became pregnant with you. Um, and and that was a really powerful way to start that story. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and how did you find out about her past? Right. Well, I that was like a really difficult thing for me to do as a filmmaker because I it was hard to kind of put myself into the film, but I think at the time as we were making it, it was really important for people to understand, at least the audience, to understand where I'm coming from mm -hmm. and why I was making it as a director. And my mother and grandmother were, they were among the first wave of Hmong refugees coming into the into America. And as they were leaving Laos, um, they left behind, you know, everything that they knew. And they left um, all my uncles and my grandfather behind. And one of the reasons why my grandfather did not want to come to the U.S. or to, to, to leave Laos during that tumultuous time was because he didn't want to follow his daughter, he said. And so... As my mother and grandmother fled and they came to the United States, they had rented this little room with a Hmong family that they they once knew in Laos. And that family had a son, and he, he raped my mother. And I was the result of that rape. And in the Hmong culture, a lot of times when young girls are raped, some there are a few options that are presented to the women. They can either marry their rapist. It's a way to fix it. Um, or the man that raped the girl can fix her, and I'm using the term fix, um, by by paying her family um, a certain amount of money. Mm. And so when my mother, when they were here in the U.S., this was like in the early, the early 80s, this had happened to her, and it was a really tiny community. I would have to say like 20 or 30 Hmong families, and so no one knew, she didn't know any English, um, and really, no one would really translate for her to express what had happened to her. And her options were, you can marry your rapist, or or you. at the time, they asked if she wanted an abortion. And so what she and my grandmother had decided to do was to keep the baby and to move out of that community. And that's kind of what happened. And, and so a lot of my, I think, growing up, in a single-parent household and growing up with that background, um, I I was keenly aware of our, our family's uniqueness within the Hmong community. And as you grow older, um, you become I became increasingly aware of the discrimination that my mother and my grandmother and even myself experienced as women in the Hmong culture. And I think although there are so many incredible aspects of the Hmong culture that are worthy of respect and reverence. Um, for me, the, there's a level of devaluation of women within the culture that I think must change. And um, I, I believe that that change can, can come through through the medium of film. And the medium of film can help initiate that or initiate discussions. And so that's what I'm hoping that our daughter's debt can do. Sure. How, how long ago did you decide to try to tell this and to try to push that change through film? I mean, how long did it take to bring this project together? Well, let's see. I My background has nothing to do with film. Mm -hmm. I, I I worked in the Bay Area for a long time with, with the state and with um, EPA, environmental, environmental work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I, I was... As I was studying and as I was I was writing a lot, 
um, I fell in love with filmmaking. I fell in love with, like, storytelling. And I went to grad school. I went to USC grad school for, for film. And that's where I started developing ideas of really just film ideas that express kind of the concerns that I was that I wanted to express as a filmmaker, stories that I didn't see being told. Um, and this was one of them. And as I was developing this idea, USC, the Princess Grace Foundation, and the Ford Foundation, all were so incredibly supportive of it, and they provided funding. And I, I think that's so important for organizations to see and to help fund um filmmakers, especially filmmakers from, like, the Asian community, because it's there's not many of us that right. are trying to tell right. stories. And so having groups like that behind you is just incredibly important. And with their help, um, I was able to make this documentary. It took about two years, um, because we started, I started off interviewing so many people. And as you know, as you bring in a camera crew, People just get really nervous, especially the documentary. These are things that you don't, we don't really talk about in the Hmong community, and it's definitely something that we don't like talking about and ex- expressing um, outside of our community. And so, for me to go in and say, "Hey guys, uh, can we? Can, I'd love to film this." I think um, we our film crew got shut down a lot, and so at the end of the day, I I had interviewed over a hundred people, and no one would let us film. Um, and I looked at my family and I said, okay, guys, I think, uh, this is something really important to me. And, and can I, can I share your story? And it took them even a little bit longer, um, to agree, but I was able to, they, they were brave enough to, to share it. And, sure. Was and it, was it more it. difficult to get the men to speak or the women to speak? Both. Mm-hmm. It, both. Um, I think it was harder for me, even though I am Hmong, it was really hard for me to go back and interview people because I, I think to them I still felt like an outsider mm-hmm. um, because you leave for college and you leave and you go away for so long. And to come back, it, it was like I had to invest time into my community again for them to trust me. As, um, and so that, that was a really interesting experience to go through. Chow, we have to uh, take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd love to continue this discussion. Will you stay with us? Yeah, happy to. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Chow Tao, who's a filmmaker and uh, whose film is being shown here in San Francisco during the Southeast Asian Film Festival called A Daughter's Debt. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, November 17th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And our guest on the phone is Chow Tao, a filmmaker who has a film playing in this uh, weekend's Southeast Asian Film Festival. If you're not in San Francisco, I am sorry. <laughs> but you can check out descriptions of the show and I'm sure find stuff online uh, by visiting i-cfilmfest.com. Uh, Chow, your film is playing this Sunday at New People's Cinema, which is in uh, Japantown. Very, very, very excited for it. Uh, before we went on break, we touched a little bit about uh, immigration issues, but more specifically, you know, the, a woman's role in being a part of the Hmong community. I know that for a lot of uh, immigrants who come here to America, there's a there's you know the, you 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 immediately have to assimilate to to some degree. And I my question really touches on you know that process of assimilation and how a woman's role may change traditionally um, from the cultural perspective, say from, you know, your native country to now here in America. Right. There, there is a huge change. And I think, I think that's what was so hard growing up is that when you, when I'm at home, there are specific roles that I have to fill as a girl and specific duties that are, that I need to do. Um, and then when I leave that world, it, it, it's completely different, right? And so going back between these two worlds has always been a struggle. And I think a lot of people feel that, um, not just in the home community, but in a lot of different other minority communities. And that, that, was, a, that was kind of a process that growing up, it was just kind of difficult to watch. It's something really particular, something that I've always been bothered by was whenever we have these huge parties. I love parties. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I love parties, especially like Hmong people can throw down a good party. You get tons of people, hundreds of people. You cook and you eat. But the worst part about it as a kid growing up, as a girl growing up, I could never eat first. Like we would cook all day and all morning and then you set the table and then the dudes eat and mm. you kind of just watch them. And that was a huge issue for me growing up. And I, I just refused to eat home food at that point. I love it now. <laughs> when I was a kid, that's kind of what I did. I would just be like, all right, well, I guess we'll just have McDonald's. Right. And it was hard to see and also go through because you're kind of struggling with like, what, why is this happening? This doesn't happen at my friend's house. You know, they're white. They don't do that. Right. And so it, it still bothers me today. I don't think 
all families do that, but a lot of traditional families still do it. And at, at big gatherings, it sometimes still happens. And I have to say, I have seen a change. Both men and women of the older generation have been trying to be more inclusive. It, it's something that I I actually have been seeing at different parties, you know, when, when the community gets together. They have been trying, and I really love that. I really love that they have, but a lot of times, it still, you know, it still happens, and you're just like, oh, really, guys? Come yeah. on. Yeah. And so and, it's just and, little things like that. Yeah, and thank you for, you know, showing us or giving us an example of the little things. Um, you know, unfortunately, you started the show with something huge, big, personal that you um, shared with us in in kind of, you know, uh, who you are as a filmmaker and a being. And the film touches on, you know, as I said earlier, three generations among women dealing with issues such as bridal purchases, polygamy, and commodification. If we could dive into that and uh, talk a little bit about um, how how do these really huge things that set women back generations and generations, how does that still affect the Hmong community today? You know, I think... <laughs> Something I think I'll touch on is polygamy. Um, I I didn't know how huge this issue was in our culture right now. I, I think a lot of part, a large part of that has to do with the fact that I don't have uh, a father in in our immediate household. And so, as I was interviewing women and as I was talking to young girls, their father or their 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 father is going through this process of potentially, and I'm not saying all Hmong men do this, but a majority of them do. Um, they're going through the process of getting a second wife. And I, I didn't know how prevalent. I also didn't know that sometimes it would take them back to Laos to, to do that process. And, and I think it's a huge problem within the Hmong culture and the Hmong community now, currently. And I think it's breaking up families and um, really, really hurting, really hurting children. Um, and it's something, as I was trying to kind of just understand that, um, what's been, what, what has been told to me by just like older women and even older men, they have expressed to me that that's kind of what, we've done, you know, at a certain point, uh, a father and we'll just kind of get a second wife. And I don't think I'm expressing it nearly as well as I should, but I'm coming from someone who I, I didn't understand why is this a need or why is this going on? Why are there so many men doing this? Um, and a lot of the older women will say kind of back in Laos, that's what you do. Right. So, and let's go back to that. I, I really want to touch on that. I mean, especially to, today, a lot of people are talking about immigrants and, and how their, you know, their lives are impacted. It's like there's this big discussion um, here in America where people seem to think that refugees uh, want to come here because it, it's sunnier or the, it's, it, you know, the weather is great. And the reality for a lot of immigrants is you're escaping, you know, a, 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 a situation whether it's war torn or you're escaping, you know, uh, a situation where your life is is uh, in danger. And going back to to Laos, you know, a lot of people, refugees who came from Laos, you know, are really escaping communist rule. You go from that environment 
And with all these, you know, traditional experiences, and now we're specifically talking about a woman and coming to, you know, a country like America, still having to experience the traditional oppression of where you came from, but now trying to also live as an American. I think that it is so complex, um, you know, in, in, in experiences that telling stories like this is incredibly important to paint an accurate portrayal of immigrant life or, you know, people who actually do come to this country. Uh, and I'm just wondering through the people that you've interviewed and the work that you've done with this film, if you would, you would agree. Absolutely. Um, it is a really complex experience, I think, both for, for the women and the men that come over, and um, especially the children that grow up um, in, in those two cultures, or the two cultures that are trying to live together. Um, again, it, it's, to me, I think it's, it's so beautiful to, to grow up and to, to have a culture that's really specific. Um, I, I can't be more proud to, to say that I am Hmong, and I'm really, really proud and honored to, to have that background. But I think growing up and seeing these traditional traditions that I feel are really outdated and that continue to devalue um, women, it's just such a, it, it's complex in itself, but it's, it's something that I feel we don't quite talk about and that I feel we, we need to start talking about. And I'm hoping that we can create kind of a more open future for this next generation. That's I, really incredible. I would say that, you know, start by making a film like like you have. John, <laughs> John has a right. question for you. Well, I was just going to ask, yeah. I mean, do you see much intermarriage happening? I mean, among men or women looking outside the Hmong community for partners? You know, honestly, I see a lot of that happening. I think within my close group of friends, the majority of them have married outside of the culture. Um, but they're, I don't know. I think, again, whenever I'm approached with that, it's like, oh, because I'm still single. The question whenever I go home is like, oh, who are you, you going to get married? Like, are you going to get married? What's going to happen? And my response is always, it's really whoever who loves you, right? So it doesn't matter what color or what what culture they're from. It's whoever loves you and loves your family and, and things like that. But I do see a lot of interracial marriages. Um, I think talking to just my close friends, it, it would be hard. It's hard to marry within the home culture still um, for me. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the friends that I have. Um, it's hard to see ourselves in a marriage like that. We're winding down on time. Um, and uh, I mean, I'll have I'll have John, you know, have the last statement of the word. But for me, I just this one question, which is pretty heavy. Um, you know, Hmong men um, fought side by side with the United States uh, against communism, you know, in the late uh, 70s. And uh, and then migrating here into this country, I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about, you know, this whole uh, conversation of, of who should be able to enter this country or not. Um, it, did you ever feel like you were not wanted, not just by your, your Hmong community and the men in the community and also by uh, the people who, who lived here, the Americans? I mean, you know, yeah, go ahead. No, um, 
for me specifically, I think I, I was really fortunate. I grew up, I grew up with um, just my mom and my grandmother who, who really just protected me and loved me a lot. And so, you know, as a kid, you don't, you don't quite think outside of that little world. And I was fortunate enough where, you know, growing, I also grew up in Utah, so surrounded, surrounded with not a lot of Asian people. <laughs> and you do feel really, I'm like, how do I say this? You do feel very different. And, um, um, but in terms of the first, going back to your question, I was interviewing a lot of men who fought um, during that time, my uncle included, who has passed away since. And I, at the time, I was doing interviews regarding General Wang Pao. Um, General Wang Pao is this incredible military leader in the Hmong community who um, is a huge figure. He's like our George Washington. And he passed away a few years ago. And at the time, there was this huge outcry, an outcry I've never seen before in the Hmong community. It was incredible. Like, the older generation, they they got out, they protested, they it, it was, I've never seen that before. It was my first year in grad school, and I, I thought, I have to film this. And the only way I can film it, um, I have to go back and interview people. Because I don't feel what they're feeling, and I'm really confused. And what they were feeling at the time was um, that this leader who led them to the U.S. is now gone, and they were so fearful that the U.S. would send them back. Wow. Um, and I didn't. I did not think that. I didn't understand that. But there was this huge fear in this older generation um, that they didn't belong. And the only way, the only thing that kept them here was this leader. And now that he's gone, what will happen to them? And at the same time, they were struggling with, and we can talk for hours on this, but they were struggling with, they wanted him to be buried in Arlington. And there was um, um, a lot of complex um, discussions regarding that. And so there is, I think a lot of fear, a lot of anger and disappointment in the response of the U.S. government and, and the community regarding thank, their thank, involvement. In thank you so much for sharing that. And we will have to have you back a second time to talk, but we're running out of time. And, John, you wanted to say something? Oh, I just wanted to know, did I see something correct that this past weekend was Hmong New Year? Yeah, we have Hmong New Year's like all month this <laughs> it's like us traveling New Year's. It's pretty intense. Well, that's a great way to celebrate it. Yeah. Well, Happy New Year. Well, thank you so much. Thanks well, for having me. Thank you so much, Chow, for joining us here. And that's a perfect end. Uh, happy Hmong New Year. So make sure you go out and check out Chow Tao's uh, film if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area at this weekend's Southeast Asian Film Festival, uh, which kicks off. And for proper schedules, um, you can head to i-cfilmfest.com. And Chow's film is called A Daughter's Debt. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue the show. And uh, we have an interesting guest. I say interesting because he's one of of three known gay imams in the entire world. So we'll talk about uh, progressive Muslim values when we come back. Don't go away.
I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis. Is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Our next guest is one of three gay imams in the entire world, or at least to my knowledge, uh, who are actually out. So here to discuss his thoughts on a more progressive Muslim religion is Imam Dai Abdallah. Dai, Imam Dai, welcome to the program. Thank you. Is, is that how we appropriately, uh, you know, reference you as Imam Dai, but as first name instead of Imam Abdallah? Or? Yeah, well, it's much more personable and easier for people to feel at ease. There's no need to call the Pope the Pope all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start by telling your story. I mean, I mentioned it in my introduction. You're one of the only, you know, three uh, known uh, or that we know of out gay imams out there. Um, tell us about well, your journey. Actually, actually, there are eight of them worldwide. Oh. Wow. So which which is still small, yes, <laughs> of course. It's still small, but just it, the numbers have grown over the last 15, 18 years or so. Which is which is good news. Um, you yeah. know, you're you're here in the United States. I mean, uh, as an American, you're in D.C. So I just thought it would be proper to kind of let our listeners know, and even myself, um, kind of how you got here in the, in the first place. Well, it's a, a <laughs> it's a journey that I say to people that if they pray to God for something to do, be careful what you ask for, because you'll wind up in many places that you never thought you would, but the journey is always a good one. Um, actually, it was through the process of being introduced to Islam while I was studying Chinese Mandarin at Beijing University that I was introduced to a form of Islam from uh, the Hui and the Uyghur 
of Muslims in China, in Western China. We were classmates, and during our conversations after classes and going to have coffee and tea and things like that, the discussion of Islam came up. And it was through that discussion that I eventually asked the question, I said, well, what about being gay and Muslim? And they say it wasn't an issue because in Chinese history they had had gay emperors and other important officials who were same-sex oriented, and therefore it wasn't a major issue. And so with that, I said, well, let me check this out and see what it was like, and I was invited to go to the mosque there. And when I went in, uh, I didn't understand the Arabic at the time, but I understood the Mandarin, and it made perfect sense to me. So that, that really increased my interest, which I continued to go once or twice a month thereafter. But when I got to Taiwan, I went there to continue my Chinese studies. Um, I saw that they had a Saudi mosque there in Taipei, and it was there that I wound up finding that the difference between the Saudi Wahhabism and the Islam I had been introduced to in China was very different. And it was with that I said, well, I have to learn more about it because it has to be something different than that. I, I would think, and, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, I think, you know, these days, being Muslim and especially being a progressive Muslim is both, uh, you know, a curse and a blessing. I mean, you have more opportunities to talk about it and, and tell people about it. At the same time, I think people are probably coming to you with much more pre preset, you know, conceptions of, of, of what you represent and what you believe. How do you deal with just the, the general assumptions that people come to you with? Well, that's, that's part of what I do in terms of getting people to better understand what the actual text means meaning that there are many people who have never read the Quran, just like in Christianity or Judaism. People are born into that particular faith but not necessarily educated in it, mm -hmm. or fully educated in it, let me put it that way. And so what they learn is much more cultural expression of what it is rather than one that, would, that a learned scholar would delve into. And so often it's getting them to understand that some things they've, they've been, that they've been taught are not accurate and much more cultural than it is accuracy in responding to what the text in the, in the Quran says. That's actually, or even the history. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. I remember some, actually, some evangelical Christians who were very learned who were kind of complaining about the, the problem of, uh, you know, what, what Scripture really is, what history really says, versus kind of the populist acceptance and understanding of their own religion and, and you know, kind of the danger of it just becoming a folk religion. Um, so now do you, when you're doing outreach, are you mostly reaching folks who are college educated or, or are they, you know, what, what, what kind of backgrounds are they coming to? Well, it's across the whole spectrum because of the pastoral counseling I've provided over the years. It has crossed the full spectrum. So I have grandparents who are talking and in some instances supporting their, their queer, uh, grandchildren or parents who are supportive, but also understanding some of the cultural issues that are there. I lived in several Muslim states and spent a number of years overseas as an expat, too. And so understanding some of those cultural um, fine-tuning that's necessary, because, for example, you may have a, an American or Canadian or, or someone living in Europe who's a professional and not upset that their child is gay or lesbian or transgender, but to be out in the community could affect the livelihood of all of them in the family. Well, they're a doctor, and then they say, oh, they got a gay child, well, we'll go to another doctor, so it destroys their economic base. So 
sometimes you have to tell the person, well, you know, until you get off to college, keep it down a little bit, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just very practical types of issues, not that you shouldn't be open and talk to your parents about it, but you don't have to necessarily be open to the public because it could influence the livelihoods of your siblings. And that, of course, because it's so family-oriented or tribally-oriented, it can mean a negative thing. So it's something that has to be do with fine nuances of, of how people live their lives and how they express them both around familiar territories and when they're not. Michelle Miao and John Zipper on the phone. Uh, our guest is uh, Imam Dai Abdullah. He's one of three, or I should say eight now, gay uh, out known uh, imams in the entire world. Um, let's bring this, you know, kind of back to my, uh, we have to address, you know, the, what's going on out there in the media world right now. All the attention is on the terrorist attacks that um, has transpired, especially in Paris, uh, Dai. And so, you know, you're gay, uh, Muslim, American, and a person of color, which I, to me, at this moment in time and kind of the discussions that people are having, uh, whether it's on the air or online or in their own homes, um, I can't imagine you not feeling vulnerable at all. Uh, what, what, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I could have a, a whole range of thoughts, but pretty much I'm at a level of comfort that I generally understand where people may be coming from in terms of their uh, strengths and their weaknesses as an individual who may be Muslim or for a person who's non-Muslim, some of their fears and some of their understandings as well. So it's it really, I don't feel that I'm out of sorts in any way, uh, and I definitely find that I'm ready to talk with people about their particular concerns and questions they may have. But as an individual, I'm still, I'm probably more fearful of the police as a black man in America today than I am as being a Muslim, per se, um, because I don't always appear as a Muslim. I, I don't always appear yeah. as a gay person. You know? So right. all of these different things is that my intersectionality, that being a black male in America is far more dangerous in the, in the forefront and rises to the top but also in other circumstances or other situations, the others may come into play. I, I think that if I were to ask a, mo a more specific question, I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't know, this is my personal feelings from the readings that I've done, uh, both good and bad media, uh, but I feel that, you know, there's this uh, lack of education when it comes to the Muslim religion. I feel that there's this bigger conversation that is generalizing all Muslims, and my fear from that is that it actually is contributing uh, to the recruitment of, of terrorists and these terrorist groups, and people just really not working with religious leaders like yourselves in communicating with uh, the the communities in order to provide actual solutions to the problems that we're facing today. Uh, but that might be like a very loaded question in which n none of us here may be experienced enough to, to even ask, but uh, maybe even for yourself in, in your personal community, I mean, is the conversation about combating terrorism even, uh, you know, a, a topic or, or up for discussion? Well, it's, it's a discussion, it's a topic that people talk about but it's one in which there's a recognition, and this is one of the things I really have a problem with with the mainstream media, is this idea that someone has to apologize for something if they paid attention, if they were not so myopic in their perspective, and, and in many instances politically motivated to say, say these things, they would see that 
thousands of times people have talked about this in the media, but it's never conveyed that way. And so what happens is that there's an idea to other people. And we know the news media, other black people, other POCs, the other the LGBTQ community. So that's their formula to talk about things. So the real issue, like Raza Aslan and various other people who talk about these things, is that we have to change the diagram to where it's just religion, but also what, how are people influencing each other in their lives? How are the governments doing different things? How are they responding to different processes? And we as individuals, how are we responding in the way that we say that we have a certain level, a certain belief? Do we really care for our neighbors in, in a way that shows that, we, that regard, we have regard for them and their particular issues? Do we really spend time to talk to people about some of the mis misconceptions that they may have about things. A lot of times people will find points of reference if you talk to each other sensibly that you find points of, of, of where you're very similar, though you may have a few differences. And I think once we see that we are very similar, we're all human beings, mm -hmm. we're all individuals who love, hurt, cry, as well as have to eat, you know, enjoy eating each other's foods too, you know, at ethnic restaurants, that we do have a lot in common, but too often we allow the politics and the religion because of what people have said or have been taught as to distract us away from us being human and our humanity and everybody. Thank you. So, so well said. We have to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we'd love to, to continue the discussion with you, Imam. Will you stay with us? Yes, I will. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. For listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.com. 
www.thepeopleofgod.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is with us. Our guest on the phone is Imam Dai Abdullah, who is one of eight out gay imams in the entire world. Um, before we went on break, we, we kind of, you know, rein this in and, and, and discuss kind of what's happening today and people's understanding of the Paris uh, terrorist attack. Um, uh, I, I kind of wanted to also bring up, you know, the one of the things that I'm seeing and hearing even in American media, you know, that uh, you've got people who I don't think understand the Muslim religion, uh, but use the religion as, ju- you know, just kind of an explanation of why terrorist groups are doing what they're doing, like as if it's uh, synonymous, you know, being Muslim means being t- a terrorist. Um, you know, how do you deal with that as as a Muslim leader here in America? Well, that's, if they do comparative studies of their own faith, they'll see that if they take and look, read information literally within their particular text, they'll see the same kind of things that they project onto others, that it's a religion of hate, it does this, it does that, kill this, do that, destroy that, versus the other lessons that are much more important within the text, which is to not presume other people are in, in, in a situation where they're trying to raise problems but that there is a way in which we interact with each other through respecting each other on a number of different levels. And I think this is where there's a, a problem within the media itself. You know, when I was a kid in, in journalism, the thing was that it wasn't that dog bit man or, or, human, or another human, or, or bit, bit a human, but it was that the human, when they bit the dog, was what journalism was. It, was. it was unusual. And I think that this is what continues to drive a lot of it, is the desire to, as I said before, to other, the one that they don't understand, and then to project onto them certain things that may be a stereotype of something, but not a truth for everyone. And so this is the same. It's like the Christian aspect of that, well, they're terrorists, they're Muslim terrorists. And yes, but you've also, if you want to use the term terrorist, people blow up stuff and do things. We also had Christian ones here, too. Well, what about, you know, McVeigh? You know, those people in the Oklahoma City years ago. It's not that it happens here all the time, but it has occurred in our history. So we have to start stepping back from the idea that they're the ones pointing the finger outside without saying that we have some people who are mentally unstable, we have people who are doing things out of whatever their particular reasoning, be it for religion or for politics, that they're doing these different things. And and once we do that, we can step back several steps and look at the picture much more broadly and understand that there are issues that are causing people to do things because most times people don't attack other people just because they're people. Do you see any changes, you know, widespread changes going on or starting within the Muslim world, uh, within Islamic thought, which is, of course, worldwide? Um, positive, negative? I mean, just what, what sort of trends do you see going on? Well, there are a number of things that have been called for but haven't been processed, if you will, in such a way to move things in a much more positive outlook, although many of the majority mosques, 
for example, in the West, they continue to have individuals who only understand the world through religion. They don't have other skills and training, such as they're not physicians or social workers or other types of ways of seeing the world outside of just religion. And so that causes them to, to see the world only as one thing. And I encourage people that they need to start talking to people and putting in the mosque people who are not only religious, but also have skills that interact with other human beings. It's very important. This and is... so I think that's part of the process. And the other thing is also the, the, the real big problem I see is that the, the texts that are utilized in some of these mosques are problematic. And there's no um, uh, hidden fact that many of the things that come out of Saudi Arabia, because of their particular history of promoting a certain particular view of Islam, which there are many different Islams, put an S on it, that uh, their particular one is the one that Americans are more commonly associate with Islam in the big picture, and therefore those stereotypes are there. But some of the things in their materials are, har are harmful, very harmful, in the way in which people don't understand it as a, a religion that continues to grow and expand as we look at it in our modern-day times. Because we can't take 7th century responses to respond to 21st century issues. Yeah. I, this is going to show my ignorance. Are, are there female imams? Yes, there are, in terms of what's coming out of the world today, yes, there are. The program I was in, which was several years ago, about 15 years ago, um, Dr. Tahalawani did have a program that uh, brought women into the, the mom programming because there were women, you know, women prisons, women needed in hospitals, women needed in various other social situations that men were in as well, meaning that as a chaplain, and various types of military and various other form, formulations that the government needed or organizations needed. And so, yes, there are women who do fulfill those roles, but they're not necessarily in the public's eye, when I say but I mean that on news, in the news and things of this nature, but they do exist and fulfill very important roles. Imam, uh, thank you so much for joining us here today and sharing your, your thoughts and your work. And um, I think that having progressive leaders like you, especially in the Muslim or Islam world, is, uh, is very important. So thank you. Well, can I get something else in before yeah. you go? Yes. Uh, I like people if they would go to Mecca Institute, um, and it's mecca-institute.org, uh, where our website is there. We have an online school that we'll be opening up in the, in the spring with some courses and then beginning a chaplaincy program in the fall. So we do need people to check it out, people to help us raise the funds to make certain it's a very positive and powerful program. And I think that in a few years, we'll start having more and more inclusively trained Islamic imams, which can make a significant difference in how we see Islam in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for your work. And we'll, we'll be sure to send people to the website uh, by our, our website as well. Okay. Thank you. Take care. And happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> Take care. Bye. I think you meant happy Hmong New Year. Happy Hmong New Year. Happy holidays. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, uh, I think that Starbucks was right in, in making a very plain red cup.
since there are so many different people drinking coffee here in this oh, country. Oh, yeah, that's that's like the biggest manufactured controversy. <laughs> you walk into a Starbucks, they still are selling the Christmas blend coffee in a nice red bag. So, yeah, you know, let's find something else to pretend um, to be upset about. Yeah, you know, my coffee mug just has a middle finger. And uh, that's, <laughs> I think, <laughs> should be the coffee, you know, mug for the rest of the year. Um, I, I didn't want to let the imam go, but uh, I mean, I hope that he'll continue to come back on the program again. Like, I think giving an accurate uh, and having an honest conversation with leaders who actually ha- are, are, you know, out there doing their work and their and their progressive work um, is so important because it's so not what the mainstream media is is talking about there, there's the problem of the ignorance of a lot of the media and the people consuming the media and then there's the problem that he was alluding to which is saudi arabia not only is home to this extremely conservative brand of it but it puts a lot of money into spreading that mm-hmm. so it's not you know by coincidence that there are so many ultra conservative you know imams around the world they've been funded by saudi arabia which you know is kind of like having I don't know what's the ultimate. Right, <laughs> it's just extremely, you know. So you're going to get that effect, and so and of course they're the ones who get right. the most attention. The media feed off that. Right, and you know, little old us, uh, however many people tuning in, and thank you so much to uh, our fans and our listeners and people who actually tune into this program. Um, but th- this is what I can do. When the attack happened on Friday, I think that you know. As a human being, I just was paralyzed by fear and by sadness and shock. Um, you know, something to the this magnitude that keeps on getting progressively worse. And, um, you know, as I'm reading through Facebook, it's like I really had to tell myself to get off of Facebook and Twitter because I was really starting to read some stuff that I, I did not want to end up believing as how bad it was. And then, yeah, I think all the profile changes made me really somewhat emotional because I wonder if any of these people who are in, in, in a very vain way showing support for France had thought about the, the uh, countless other, uh, of, uh, other people or lives that have been lost due to these types of attacks, if they under, even understand why terrorist attacks happen, happen, who these people are, how they're being funded. Um, and, uh, and if it came down to it, would these people enlist in fighting against terrorism? Would they give $10 to you know the uh, Red Cross for, for the lives that are lost in the emergency situations that we you know, um, are in? So those are a lot of questions that I had before I publicly spoke about you know, the terrorist attacks. And, and it, Yeah, I mean, social media does allow people to be very, very cheap activists. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So not to, you know, criticize any of y'all who sit there passively and, and send thoughts and prayers, but I'm just saying, if we really want to do something... Sure. I mean, I, I've liked lots of posts over the past few days that have to do with supporting Paris and, yeah. and uh, such. I also recognize that my doing that does nothing except send the message to the person who posted that, oh, good, you got, you know, yeah. instead of 217 likes, you got 218 right. likes. 
But um, it, hey, you know, that's why we're, we do what we do. The least that we can do is have a much more honest discussion on our show. So thank you so much for tuning in today. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. John Zipper will be back Friday with his week-to-week political roundtable talk. You'll want to make sure you want to tune in for that because it's much more intelligent, like 10 levels, 10 <laughs> notches more intelligent than what we do here. We'll see you tomorrow at the same time. For everything else, head to michellemeow.com. Thank you.